Hello, everyone. Welcome to the, another episode of The Full Life. And as you can see, our friends are all here, Carolyn, Jenny, and Hank. And of course, Pastor Karen's back. Welcome back, Karen. We love having you. I love being on. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, today's show is all about emptying yourself, dying to yourself, and allowing God to fill you, which we know is, of course, a biblical uh, principle that we should be following as followers of Christ. And to begin today's show, we're going to have a discussion on fasting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some questions to all these more experienced fasters today, because I have to say, I don't know if there are people like me out there. But fasting sounds like a terrible idea to me. I don't know how to do it. I think it's going to be overwhelming. And I think I would be not so nice of a person for a few days if I tried. <laughs> so I'm going to pass out. I'm going to pass. Well, I'm not going to pass. pass out. That's what I would do if I were in the Please it's don't pass out. Slip. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> See, I, this is what I'm thinking, but nope. I'm going to pass the mic to these people. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask all of you. So how do you, what is the importance of fasting? Let's talk about that first. What is the importance of fasting in terms of our life, our walk with Jesus? And I'll start with Karen. Yeah. Um, it, it's to me, it, it, for a Christian, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's okay. very important. Um, you know, when I read, when I read in the gospels or I read in Matthew, I see, you know, Jesus, he did not say if you fast, but he says when you fast. And, um, so when I look like at Matthew chapter six, verse 16, it says when you fast. And, you know, when I look at Matthew six, verse five, it says when you pray. And so years ago, when I started my first fast, my first fast was a 40 day fast. And um, I, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just really knew God was calling me to a time of fasting. And so I began to study about it. I began to read about it. I began to look in scripture and see who fasted, how they fast, why they fasted. And I really believe that that consecration, that time of fasting that I did and my husband joined with me, but in his own way, was um, how the birth of our church, you know, came mm. to pass. Um, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I knew that God had to do something in me for me to really be able to walk alongside of my husband um, so that our church could be birthed out because I wasn't for it. I did not see myself as being a pastor's wife. I didn't see, you know, I didn't think that I had what it took, you know, to to co-pastor with my husband. I didn't even see myself as a co-pastor at the time, but I knew that you know, God wanted to do something in me. So for me, prayer and fasting is like a hand in a glove and it's a lifestyle for me. Right. For a long time, I really didn't fast. Um, and I feel really guilty even saying that a little bit because, you know, I just like, oh, you know, you've really got to be called to it because I think you need a grace to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, to deny your flesh from food. I don't know if anybody else loves to eat, but we love to eat in our family. And so to me, it's something that you really got to be called to. It's got to be something that I feel like you, you hear God speaking to you going, because the Bible says that some things only come by prayer and fasting. Yeah. I mean, so there, it is very important that we take time to deny ourselves. I almost say it like, um, where we are taking our flesh and we're, we're almost killing it um, mm. to make space for the Holy Spirit to speak his will and not our will. And um, so normally we've started now uh, at the beginning of every year, we kick off January 1st where, and even my children, we open it up to them. We tell them you do not have to, mm. there's no guilt, there is no shame, but you take it, you pray about it. If you feel like it, you know, we're going to do it. And we always do the Daniel fast. Well, this year just happened to be one of these years that I made it through the first 21 days. Then God said, you're not done. Mm -hmm. And so I continued on and did not get a release till 90 days into that fast. And I was believing God from some direction in my life. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not quitting. And Ezra, if you go to Ezra 821, uh, Ezra prayed and asked the Lord to give him direction because he needed to transport money. And he was afraid that he was going to get um, 
you know, somebody was going to rob him. And he went before the Lord and he pleaded. And it says that God not only gave him protection, but he gave him direction. And so I think if anybody's out there today and they're going, God, I don't know what to do. I need answers. Seek God and he will give it to you. And um, so I think it's important, but I think that you really need to do it because God has called you, not because you're worrying about what anybody else thinks, because it is hard. It is hard. Yeah, yeah, that's the key there. The, the fast needs to be spiritual. And, and that's where, you know, uh, for you, you know, you believe that God told you guys to do one at the first yeah. of the year. We don't always do one at the first of the year because we felt like for a while there, it was just everyone was doing it because that's what you right. do. Well, that's what we do at the first of the year. Yeah. We all fast. And it's like, if God hasn't called you to that right. fast, you are going to struggle your way through that fast. And, you know, and I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm one of those that would find the reasons why we don't need to fast. You know, while the bridegroom, you know, Jesus's disciples were asked, or, you know, why didn't, why didn't uh, your disciples fast, Jesus? While the bridegroom is with them, they shouldn't be fasting. I'm like, bridegroom's with me. I got Jesus. I don't need to fast. You know, I mean, I would look for those reasons not to. Um, but I also recognize in the, I've recognized in my life when I have surrendered and said yes, to a fast, um, how incredibly powerful they are. And it's so funny. It's kind of like the principle of giving, you know, we sometimes struggle with giving and yet we see how faithful God is every time we do. We're like, oh my gosh, you just, you know, that God, you just blew my mind. You did this for me and you did that for me. And the testimony that comes with, but we still struggle. It's seriously the same way with fasting. It's, I don't want to do this. And you know, you struggle with it. Should I, God, please, I'm going to put out a fleece. I'll put out 14 fleeces to be sure, you know, we're really right on this one. And yet when you're in the midst of it, it's like, if you ask anybody in the middle of a fast, when you get past that first, you know, few days, right. yeah, you get to that point where you're like, oh my, I don't ever want to be out of this. You're like in that euphoric almost time where you're so close with God and you're, you know, your body starts to feel good and you start, um, you know, hearing differently and you feel closer to the Lord. And I think it's interesting that, you know, God didn't require any real structural fasts mainly except for of course the big one that most of you should know which is Yom Kippur the feast of uh, the fast of Yom Kippur and that is a that's not even what I would call a hard fast for some people that really fast you know it's it's just sundown to sundown fast um so you know really you could eat your dinner at like 4 30 or 5 and then you just got to wait till five o'clock the next day so it's really not that hard I know, that sounds like cheating i know i'm like that's easy y'all come on now a true yom kippur fast includes no water either no liquid no water no food no anything but i was actually doing some research on it this year um because we used to not fast on yom kippur because i felt like what, what the jewish people are fasting for in yom kippur is for repentance um to be accepted into the book of life so my thing was like christians should not fast on yom kippur i used to just think christians that fast on yom kippur i was like you do not understand what you're doing because we know we have salvation we don't have to fast for salvation but then one day I had a realization that what a perfect day to fast for the salvation of other people. And so that's what we began to do on Yom Kippur mm -hmm. was fast for the salvation of the Jewish people. And there is, there is scientific evidence now that proves that a one day pure solo fast, no food, no water. I, I wish I had the stats on it. I should have had the stats ready for you, Joe. Um, uh, maybe we can I pull them up some other time, but like it resets your kidneys it resets like heart flow, like in your valves, it resets your liver. There's like a literal reset that scientists are now, non-Christians, non-believers are saying, uh, one of the best things you can do to reset your kid is, is do this 24 hour, no water, no food for 24 hours. It is like a health reset to your body. The um, health, heart doctors are now telling their patients um, that have dealt with heart disease, do a 24 hour dry fast to reset your system. And how amazing that God knew. Mm. Right. Hank, what has been your experience with fasting? So my introduction to fasting actually came through the Muslim line in my family. Um, so my first memory of fasting was through Ramadan, um, which was very, very different. Um, it was people got up really early in the morning. There was a big communal meal. And then you fasted all throughout the day. I didn't necessarily know what was going on, but I just thought it was interesting, right? This idea that like we can do something to either please God or draw us closer to God was at least my interpretation of it all. Um, in scripture, though, I think that, you know, I think we pretty much have said everything. I think for me, it looks more like discipline. Uh, I had a really good conversation with a friend who says, 
that it would be helpful for us to look at spiritual disciplines just very practically, like exercising. Most of us can't roll out of bed tomorrow and go run a marathon. You know, um, I think it's something you built up. But I also think that, you know, it's something where it's a commandment. You know, part of what we're called to be is um, we're all disciples of Jesus. And I think it's really hard to be a disciple if you don't listen to the person you're supposed to be following. And I think maybe the, um, the biggest gain for me is always that there's so much I don't realize I'm gorging on in and of this world that you know, this helps reorient my thinking around that, you know? So the idea of doing without, um, that's one of the spiritual benefits I can always count on. I don't always know what God's going to say or where he's going to lead, but I do know that I, so we talked about the physical cleanse and the medical people can tell you all the benefits of it. But for me, it's that spiritual cleanse where I'm like, oh my gosh, I was gorging on this, 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 and none of that's good for me. Wow. Um, and then this is the practical of when you're hungry, you pray better. I have found. Yes. Oh, like really? you can't eat. You know, you got to do something. So you call out. And you know, if I can add this to what you're saying, Hank, is that it's funny because I think we don't realize it even as Christians of how much we use outer things to fill our pain or numb the pain or whatever the emotion. And I think there is something about fasting that makes you get really raw and real to go, I am fasting myself from using any outward thing to fill me up. Hmm, and God, cool. I'm asking you to look at me. And I'm going to tell you what, it's it is, um, it's humbling. It's challenging. I mean, there is times that in the middle of it, man, I was under some major spiritual attack. And to be quite frank with you, anybody that's watching this thinking, oh, I'm going to fast because it's my little, uh, put it in the jukebox, get whatever I want. That's not what we're talking about. I didn't get the prayer answered the way I wanted it answered. And it's really important for us to remember this because, but what it did is it changed me. How do you prepare for a fast? How do you, how, and how do you go through it step-by-step? Step? Are there techniques or there ways? And I know there are different kinds of fasts for people. So we could just talk about that a little bit. I would love that. It goes back to that word that Hank used, discipline. And the way that I prepare for a fast now at 54 was not how I prepared for a fast 20 years ago because my body is different now. So 20 years ago, I would just go on a fast. I don't even know if I really prepared for a fast, but I realized that my body is, 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 is not the same. And um, so I, I use wisdom in it. I, Carolyn said something that was, is, is, is so intricate is that you have to you have you have to have the grace for it. I, I'm very careful who I share and what I share on how I'm going to fast because it's very important that everyone doesn't jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. because you're doing it, that they really feel yeah. led to do it. There's many fasts that I started that I didn't I didn't always finish. And um and I, you know, I was just like, did God call me to that or did I call myself to that? And, and so now I know that God has called me to this 10 day fast and, and I slipped and I, and I shared that it was a water fast. Cause I guess I was, you know, trying to get, get out what Holy spirit was given to me. And, um, and I know God has given me the grace for it, but I know that at 54 on September 1st, I can't just start that water fast without preparing my body, um, my soul, my soulish realm, um, for those 10 days, because I understand that those 10 days, I'm going to endure some warfare. My body is going to be angry with me, but I know that I've been called to it. I heard Holy Spirit say, go to the book of Daniel. And I knew that I knew immediately God was calling me to 10 days because I need revelation on how to strategically pray in this season for our nation. And, and I need to hear the heart of God. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they asked for 10 days to not eat from the king's delicacies. Mm -hmm. And so immediately when I went to Daniel chapter 10, I knew it was God, but at 54, I know I can't do what I did at 34 or even at 30. And so 
I've begun to prepare my body for it. I begin to take journey walks, talking to God, talking to Holy Spirit, you know, crucifying my flesh, you know, changing how I'm eating a bit now so that when I get to September 1st, not only will I be spiritually prepared, but I, my body will be able to maintain uh, myself as I go through it. If you're not careful, you're you're going to spend your, your days feeling so awful you can't yeah. even focus on God. And then you've missed the whole point of getting quiet before him. You know, if you're dealing with headaches and I mean, those things are very real. If you're used to caffeine and things, you need to start weaning yourself off now uh, to prepare your body for it. You said water fast mm -hmm. there. You know, you said uh, Daniel fast, Carolyn, which is you explain what that is because there's different kinds of fasts, And I just want to mm -hmm. make sure people know that they're not giving up all, you know, not no. necessarily all food no. every time. Yeah. You know, so. Right. Well, Daniel, it, it's a lot like what she's just speaking about right there. He wanted to do it away from how the king, how they were all getting ready to go to battle, mm -hmm. eating up their meat and their wine. And they were just feeding their flesh is really what they were doing. Mm. He says, no, no, no. I want to glorify God. I think he wanted to show that it was God that was going to give him the power and give him the victory. So what he did is he just denied himself from protein and just, and no fatty foods, no sugars, no carbs. And he stuck to just stuff that came out of the ground. You know, he, he yeah. kept with uh, the, uh, vegetables and fruits and because of it he came to victory but it wasn't about him mm -hmm. that's what fasting to really me is is we're seeking god for the victory we're seeking god for the wisdom we're saying lord we're emptying ourselves out because we're we're at the end of our rope yeah, and yeah. we're saying but we need you and i think i love what karen's saying i think it's something really right now where our country and where our nation is i think it's something we all should really pray about doing because we need jesus yeah like never before in his wisdom. We really do. I was fasting one time for my sister, Jody. They uh, adopted uh, their first baby and it's a long story I won't get into, but um, within the first 24 hours, things had kind of gone really sour. Uh, the, the first day they had him, the first day he was born. And um, we just believed that he was their boy. And I put that baby's picture on my refrigerator. I put it on my computer, you know, just that the, the, the first uh, picture that they had, you know, caught of him. And, uh, I, I fasted for, for him and for God's will. And like, that was to me, that was the easiest fast I think I'd ever done because I mean, I was so driven by the purpose yeah. of the fast. One thing that I remember that one of my husband's mentor shared with us years ago, when we were young, when I was young in my faith, he says, Daniel was a man of purpose. He was a man of prayer and he was a man of prophecy you know, the different kinds of fast. And so we think about Elijah, you know, he went for 40 days without food after Jezebel, you know, you know, scared him off. And during that time, he heard from God. Moses fasted for 40 days, you know, and that's when he got the law. You know, that's when mm. he got the commandments. Esther, she fasted for a a a, a, a a, 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 a group of people that were going to be taken out. But she called a fast before she even went before the king. You know, she didn't move until that fast was proclaimed. Right. Hannah, when she was praying, she was barren. The Bible says that she didn't eat. You know, Peter, you know, when he was praying on, on the rooftop, he was three days and, and he got direction. So, I believe that, you know, even as I'm sharing, I, I, I try to be very careful that you don't have to do it the way that I do. Ultimately, Holy Spirit has to be your umpire. If Holy Spirit, if it's not God breathed or God led, it's not for our house. And so yeah. we have begun to trust the leading of Holy Spirit. When is the time for us to fast? Our right. church corporately or us individually? My husband is not going on this 10 day fast with me. I didn't even tell him about it. You know, God will, God, Holy Spirit knows how to talk to his sons and daughters. Holy Spirit will, will tell you what to do and how to do it and give you the grace to do it. Well, I think the, um, the other thing too, we haven't talked about is that I think that there's also the focus on emptying mm -hmm. what we need to empty ourselves out of. Um, I think that's also huge. So for a lot of people who might be intimidated, I think that an easy way in to could be think about those things that are super negative in your life and, and start there.
You know, so there's a lot of people who will be quick to tell you, ah, I think social media is terrible and blah, 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 blah. It's so much darkness, blah, blah, blah. Well, there you go. There's your entry point, right? Like do a, a fast, right? Where you say, I will spend the day off social media. You know, for a lot of people, that's harder than saying I'm not going to eat anything. Um, there's other people who maybe are overworked. You know, I think we live in a country that breeds overworking. Um, so figure that out. So say, I will take all my work stuff off my home or when I'm present, I'll be present with those I'm present with. You know, I think there's, there's little entry points because I think the right. the bigger idea than the discipline of fasting is what are we emptying ourselves of and what are we filling ourselves up with? And how do I give God a chance to, to fill me up in? And I think the way to do that is to look at some of those things that are struggles and and attack them by fasting. I was going to call them idols. Look at those idols. Look at those things that you're stuck on in your life and and really start with those things. Uh, thank you to everyone again uh, for that. I think it was a great, I thought it was great. Uh, maybe I'll actually try it now. <laughs> now I'm so, I, I've gotten so much good information. I appreciate all of that. And to continue today's conversation, she talks about fasting in her book. In fact, she says prayer without fasting and almsgiving. Is it prayer? Because we're called to do all three. So let's toss to our conversation that Hank and I had with author Marlena Graves. Marlena Graves is a writer and adjunct professor. She is about to start her PhD in American Cultural Studies. She lives with her husband and her three daughters in Toledo, Ohio. And I'm so excited to welcome her to the show. Please welcome Marlena Graves with us today. Hello. I am so grateful to be with you both. I'm Marlena. Well, I'm so grateful for your book. Uh, I've, I've been reading it over the last couple of days. And for all of our viewers out there, it's called The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Losing Yourself. First of all, I want to ask, tell, tell me the, your story, Marlena. Mm -hmm. how, how, how have you known God? How have you come to know him over the years? Even at four years old, I knew there was something more to life than what we could see. I don't know how to explain it. I, I, maybe a heavy sense of the presence of God. And uh, I've always been the type of person, I remember even at four or five years old when we lived in California for a little bit, I was born in Puerto Rico, but we moved to California for a bit and then to Pennsylvania. I would break up fights. I don't know if I'm like, try to be a peacemaker or I don't know what that is, but I don't like violence and um, uh, people towards each other of hurting each other or the earth for that matter. But uh, I grew up very poor uh, when we lived in uh, Western Pennsylvania. It's on the northern tip of Appalachia. Appalachia, they say, but Appalachia is <laughs> easier for me to say. You know, my family was the only Hispanic Latino family there. Um, and we I spoke Spanish in my house, always had my abuelita, my grandma, mm -hmm. and abuelito living either with us or near us across the street. And so um, I noticed that my abuela would always read the Good News Bible. It was the gold edition with the little pictures in it. Um, and uh, she would read it every single day. And she was trying to pronounce the words in Spanish. She read out loud. Uh, she only had a third grade education because her mom died in childbirth. And there were 10 or 11 the, of them in Puerto Rico. And she had to leave school to help uh, make ends meet for the family. But I think she was such a good model for me. I didn't like consciously think it, I don't think, but if I'm like, if Abuela thinks the Bible is important and reading the Bible is important, then I, I, I want to read the Bible. And so from about the age of 10 to 14, I'd read the Bible for two to four hours a day. And I just always think about the Lord and, um, the church and how to be like Jesus. And I'm not trying to sound pious and holy at all, but I mean, I think I've just always thought that way. And I didn't even like, one time I stood up on rocks and preached to the birds and my siblings, like St. Francis, I think. I didn't know about St. Francis. And I was waiting for like an apparition of Mary to come. I was like, okay, if we stay out here for a long time, maybe Mary will appear to us like she did to the children in other places. Um, and so, I mean, I went to a Protestant church because uh, the Roman Catholic church was too far away. And so I've been in Protestant circles now, but I'm obviously influenced by the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches and, and uh, mainline Protestants. And that was one of the best things I've, I heard in the book was, was really those references from all of these different 
thought leaders and theologians and, mm -hmm. and not to mention the scripture, but really it's jam packed with all this support from all these different thought leaders. Uh, I think the book's all about exploring, uh, at least explaining, not along with your personal experiences, this process uh, called kenosis, mm -hmm. which is a really fun um, theology or theological word for some of us who love that stuff. But can you describe what that process is um, for, for everyone, I guess? How would you describe kenosis? Yes, thank you, Hank. Um, you know, it, it means a self-emptying or self-offering. It comes from Philippians chapter two, where the apostle Paul saying, have this mind you that is in Christ Jesus. Though um, he was equal with God, he didn't grasp for equality with God. Basically, he didn't take the divine rights that were his. He gave them out and he became poor. So elsewhere, Paul says um, he gave up his riches for us. For our sake, he became poor that we might be rich. When I'm thinking about kenosis, you know, some people might be confused. I've had a couple of people ask me, it's self-sacrifice and self-offering. But when I'm talking about that, and I don't think this is what it means theologically, is to, um, you know, allow yourself to be in, in abusive or toxic situations. Or as, you know, the uh, minorities, uh, let yourself be abused and mm -hmm. tortured and killed. But kenosis is, you know, suppose that somebody hurts me in the workplace or um, in a family and I want to retaliate against them. Like I'm very angry and even justified in um, my retaliation. Let's say they did something wrong and um, I actually have good reason to retaliate against them personally. It's setting that aside. It's really, I think, in uh, comes in how we treat people personally, you know, not always having my way, giving up mm. my way, like uh, the, the Lord's prayer, uh, you know, the apostles prayer, you know, thy may thy will be done. So I lay aside my will so that God's will can be done in my life. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really um, cool and, and, and a good distinction. I think for a lot of people, humility within Christianity um, almost is mistaught to them or they believe that, you know, emptying myself or being humble is, you know, putting myself or keeping myself in these bad situations, right? This is just my lot. Um, so I really appreciate you speaking to that. Um, are there any biblical examples or people either from the book or just as you think right now in the Bible um, outside of Jesus, do you feel really have lives that, that show kenosis or, or that we can point to? You know, I think of Paul right away. He wrote this. He's like, you know, even though I'm like the smartest guy trained by Gamaliel, you know, I, I count these things as loss um, so that I might know Christ and his sufferings. Like Paul, for example, mm -hmm. he he could have, you know, used his education or authority as a Pharisee and just really use that. Um, to abuse people because he was in a high position, but he says, I count all these things as lost or some versions say rubbish for the sake of following Christ. Um, and, you know, a lot of the most, the people that I respect the most, I mean, some of them are like very gifted in several ways, either gifted in humility or at a skill, but they don't, um, you know, I can think of the Spanish word. Uh, <laughs> I have to think of the phrase. They don't, uh, they don't use that to be superior to other people. I'm trying, I can't uh -huh. translate it exactly. Oh, what's the, yeah, what's the phrase? That'd be, no mean, se los echas, no se los echas, okay. no se los echas. Okay. And so they don't, they don't use that to promote themselves. Like, you know, right. it could be money. Like, hey, I'm a millionaire. I get mm -hmm. special treatment. I mean, God wants you to provide for your family and to care for them and to care for the poor. Um, but, um, if we start pursuing money, power, and wealth, you know, to elevate ourselves for self-aggrandizement, I mean, that's not the way of Jesus. But really, uh, kenosis is emptying ourselves of anything in us that is not Christ-like, that is not of God. And so when we empty or lay aside or relinquish or detach or crucify, any of those words that you want to use, when we do that, we make room in our lives for God. And you, you mentioned one of the things we were going to talk about was that counterfeit trinity that you talked about, the power, money, and the great power, money, and uh, influence. Uh, influence. That was the word I was looking for. Of course, we know who Jesus was. We knew how he grew up. We knew how he was born. 
But for me, it's the way you described the nature of where he grew up and kind of how poor he was really sort of hit me in a new way. So I'd love for you to share that with everyone just so we get a context of, you know, he was a man of the marginalized almost from his, well, it was from his very birth. And yes. so even before his ministry, his whole life sort of spoke to this. Yeah, I mean, I am blown away. And I think that's a way I found solidarity with Jesus um, that uh, actually not as a child, but older, like mm -hmm. you grew up very poor and you chose to like he didn't choose to be born in Rome or Alexandria, Egypt or in Antioch, uh, Syria, mm -hmm. the main uh, places that, you know, wealth in their time. But he was born in the backwater of Nazareth, like, you know, people say country bumpkin, um, you know, other places in the scripture. They uh, when Jesus uh, was about to be crucified and, and and the young servant girl recognizes Peter. He's like she's like, are you a Galilean? Basically, because he has a Galilean accent. You know, they had an accent. And so Jesus, you know, I think coming to Earth, he could have come and lived in palatial quarters or in you know, the utmost. But I think the reason why, um, you know, he did that is so, you know, number one, that no one said that anything that happened to him could come from his wealth or power or influence. It was all given the glory to God, any, all the good things and, and the divine power. And also, um, you know, his, I, you know, was reading about the offerings of turtle doves that Mary made. And I think the mother had to make it when um, they took him to present him on the eighth day. And those were the, those two doves is the offering of the poor. Why couldn't she and Joseph give him more? Now, Joseph, you know, I'm sure worked as a carpenter, but he didn't make enough money. And I actually believe um, that Jesus, the reason why he could say in Matthew 6, 25 through 33, you know, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will add, be added unto you. And he also talks about, um, you know, consider the birds of the fields and the flowers in the fields. And, you know, they don't strive. They don't make their own clothes. But your heavenly father provides for them because he himself had to in his humanity. However, that works. He had to trust God for his daily bread. That's why I think it's in the Lord's prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what he prayed. Um, you know, like we, we need to eat today and I don't know where the food's coming from. And uh, so he was in a Roman occupied territory, you know, where the Romans just beat crucified, beat people up for fun uh, or killed you. If you looked at them wrong, you know, the soldiers, if you didn't do what they said. And so he had, he grew up in a, an oppressive environment as uh, you know, what they say is a first century Palestinian peasant, uh, you know, and I'm, I I just think about God's kenosis, like everything he gave up to become human. Ah. <laughs> and, and and also he also gave up a reputation because, you know, um, the Pharisees and other people called him Beelzebub. They called him a devil, a drunkard. Like he could have just struck them dead and said, are you kidding? You know, even the <laughs> disciples at one point told him when a village dissed them, he was like, hey, the disciples were like, we'll call down fire from heaven for you, Jesus. Can we do that? Um, because they showed you disrespect. And I'm just blown away that he came as a poor, poor man and and made a beeline for the poor and the marginalized and the people that are left out. You think about it and go, oh yeah, he was essentially homeless when he was born. I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't they didn't have a place to stay. Then they almost immediately became refugees into a country. And then mm -hmm. they, went to a, they, they lived in a poor work, working class. You know, I, I think people just need to hear that, you know, and make sure like, that makes us look, I think, at what a lot of people would consider the other um, in a different way, knowing, oh, Jesus came like this. You know, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and that's the only reason why Jesus had a tomb. Right? So I think if, you know, as James says, those of us that are rich in the world, we got to make sure we pay the workers right and treat people well. I mean, there's a burden. Um, but that's me, too, because uh, maybe not compared in the United States, but most of the world I'm in filthy rich. And so, um, the, and in Matthew 13 says the riches and the concerns of life can um, suffocate the gospel. I love a quote that you said, and I'm going to say it for them in the book. You said uh, Jesus relied on his daily bread. And he said, because 
where and you said because um we're but we're supposed to be the daily bread for somebody else mm -hmm. i just wanted to land that for the people out there because i thought oh wow yes of course we are if he's the bread of life and we're part of him we're supposed to be the daily bread for someone else um i want to follow up a little bit so i think one thing that's interesting hearing you um explain is just the, the centrality of looking at Jesus's poverty. I think one of the dangers we have is we so spiritualize it that we don't do enough to, to live in the reality that, oh my goodness, Jesus may have been hungry for a long time. Yeah. Um, so I just, I was wondering if you, like what are practical ways, is this just, just an ideological concept people need to have, but what are practical ways that understanding Jesus as poor impacts our um, understanding of poverty around us, um, whether it's in our city or county, or how should it motivate us as Christians? How does that change? You know, like, so he was poor, so what? I guess is my question. Like, how does that, how should that impact us? Yeah, that's a great, great. This is the first time I've been asked that. So I'm gonna think for a second. Like um, Bishop Oscar Romero, I mean, I see people as a gift. Why, if, if many of the last will be first, those are the words of Jesus and many of the first will be last. Why don't we sit at the feet of the poor and learn from them? Why do we, uh, you know, why do we always put trailer parks in the worst part of town where they can't be seen? Where are the refugees, the immigrants, anyone that's marginalized, you know, physically, where, where do they live in our town? Do we overlook them like the rich man in the story of rich man and Lazarus because mm -hmm. we're so used to seeing them? that they blend into the background. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that, um, you know, there's, I think there's structural reasons for poverty. When the apostle Paul was made an apostle, uh, Peter and James told him to remember the poor. Mm -hmm. And why? They could have told him lots of stuff, but mm -hmm. he, they said, remember the poor. I think uh, the poor are a gift to mm -hmm. us. Um, and Jesus, again, thinking about Jesus's life, he went out and lived among them. And I think they can uh, teach us the way of Christ and humility. Um, of course, you know, I always think of people's pushbacks. Yes, there's poor scoundrels and yep. there's rich scoundrels. I'm not saying like the poor are naturally holy. All I mean is, though, there's I let less keeping the poor like they, they know they have to depend on God. They can't depend on their strength, their job, their position. And so maybe that's, we can learn humility from them and not just humility. Uh, there's a lot of very wise people that I have met that are poor in the eyes of this world. Thank you. Yeah. I think for me, one of the, um, maybe the two passages that are really helpful for me were the Beatitudes and then mm -hmm. Matthew 25, um, yes. when the spirit one time just said to my spirit, you know, Jesus is preaching from this, not just because he's God, but because he lived this. Yeah. You know? And that changed everything for me. Like, blessed are the poor in spirit because he was poor in spirit. Yeah. You know, when he separates the sheep and the, the goats, you know, like, he was all those things. You know, he was hungry. He was naked. Um, it changed my understanding of poverty and my response to poverty. Um, but I love John's take, right? And because I think if John knew Jesus the best, he says, in whom there was no sin, as in the idea that I've looked at him through and through, mm -hmm. I'm the closest, you know, like when everyone else ran, I was at the base of the cross, you know, I took the duty to take care of his mother. Um, and the reason I'm framing John this way, because I think when you read through First John, it gets at some of this, right? Like, as John talks a lot about, man, how can we love God who we can't see, but not love our sisters and brothers who we do see? Like, how can we say, lightness is in us, you know, um, if we're living in darkness. So I was wondering if, um, yeah, like, I don't know if you have any, I don't know, response to some of that, or just, I guess, I don't know if there's a question in there, but I was, I was trying to see like, where does the practicality of how we walk with each other and how we journey with each other? Um, why is that so necessary for us as Christians? I guess maybe that's my question. Well, I, I mean, I think you nailed it. I, I, I make make a commentary. You said it so well. So, no, no, go ahead. Um, and also about the poor, what you said about Matthew twenty five. I'm like, yeah. oh, my word. You know, thank you, thank you, Hank, and Joseph. I mean, and maybe I could add a little. I don't know what oh, I yeah, could add. Yeah. You said it so well. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with you that 
you know, and also says in John, right? And we report what we've seen and heard, and we testify to these things. Uh, I mean, the practicality is, you know, you've we've heard the same. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And and, mm. and in uh, Matthew twenty-five, to get back to that, Jesus didn't say because you had your theology theological eyes and T's crossed, mm. welcome into heaven. He said, because when I was hungry, you fed me. I mean, I could have all the theology down about how to treat the poor. Yeah. But, you know, as Paul says in 13, if I don't have love, if I don't do it. Yeah. And Jesus also says, be ye, I, I learned it in the King James. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, yeah. If you grew up black church, you grew up King James. So I'm good. <laughs> I don't know about Joseph, but I'm good. Yeah. Be ye doers of the word and uh, uh, not hearers only. Not hearers only. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to go to heaven because we have all our theology exactly right. And I'm not saying theology is not important, but, you know, theology and practice. Because the Pharisees had their theology right for the most part, Jesus said, for the most part, but not their practice. And he says uh, in Matthew 22, 23, I think, woe to you, Pharisees. And I'm talking to myself. You know, you make you cross land and sea to make a convert, but you make people twice the sons and daughters of hell as you are. And actually, you know, the scripture says teachers will be held even more accountable. <laughs> so I'm even more accountable if I'm talking about that's the, that's the terrifying one <laughs> in this conversation about about this. I want to talk about the concept of repentance. Over the last couple of weeks, we talked about forgiveness. We talked about the importance of going back and forgiveness and being, you know, in communion with our brothers. But we started to talk about repentance. We didn't quite go all the way through it yet. And I'd love to really explore that and what that process looks like. For Christians, yeah, I, I think uh, getting from the church, the Eastern Church, and the Catholic Church, that repentance is coming home to God, uh, coming home, returning to where you know where we're supposed to be, um, and so you know repentance is turning around and going the way of Jesus, and I, I think repentance and confession that goes along with it is needs to be daily. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to, you know. Uh, from the Protestant background, you know, it says people, they picture us being born again, like a one-time thing. May, maybe it is. I, I don't know if I agree with that completely, but, but that we have to, but I think we have to be born, reborn again and again from those areas in our lives that are not Christ-like. So, you know, maybe some of us have to be converted to Christ in the way we see and use money and our wealth, mm. uh, like we were just talking about. Others, for us, it's how envious and greedy we are. You know, we can go on and on. It's different from each person. But there are parts of my life that are not fully converted to Christ. And when God makes that me aware of that or through another person or, or life, I need to repent. I need to change my way. I need to return home to God. And so I can't keep going down the same or path or direction that I was going. Now, obviously, that's extremely hard to do by our will alone. We need the grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need the Christian community. And my best example, and I'm not the only one that has said this, is that the AA programs, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you repent by saying, you know, I'm Marlena and I'm a whatever, you know, I'm a Pharisee or self-righteous. I talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, admitting the truth about myself, the ugly truth, the truth that I don't want anyone to know. I need to be able to say that to God. I mean, to myself, to God and trusted others. For some, it's, you know, a priest, a spiritual director, friends. I think we should use all those avenues mm -hmm. because it's only when we confess the truth of who we are that we can begin the road to repentance. And uh, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, um, you know, if we repent of, let's say, self-righteousness, then my life should not should be more and more less self-righteous mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's not like okay in uh 2014 on may 5th i repented of self-righteousness and i'm done with it because usually it's deeply rooted in my life right it takes years and so my life should bear fruit in keeping with that repentance uh, if i made it on that day and um and so and then repentance is not just saying i'm sorry either right Right. Well, that's that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to. I want. I want people to get into that. Yeah. Dig into that. <laughs> what is repentance then? If it's not just I'm sorry, what is it? 
Let's let's go there. Yeah, well, going back to Alcoholics Anonymous, which comes from scripture, right? Confess your sin. You confess your sins, but you don't just stop there. Um, you know, in the book, I do talk about Zacchaeus, who says, I'm going to make reparations. If I tell someone that I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but still treat them badly, then I'm that's not repentance. Repentance is doing whatever it takes to make it right. That's repentance. Repentance is not only confession. Confession is where it starts, admitting who we are. But repentance, and it doesn't happen. It's not microwavable. It, it takes time. I think for a lot of us who come from more Protestant leanings or backgrounds, I think we downplay, or at least, at the very least, we we think it's not theologically right, right? Like the idea that Catholics, for example, go and confess to a priest, right? And we have this almost like a Protestant, I don't know if ego is the right word, but like, well, I can go directly to Jesus, right? Um, I just want to see, like, can you speak more of why it's important for us to confess to one another? I mean, it says it in scripture, but why is that so important? Yes, yeah, it's, you know, so that we may be healed in James. And I do think, I mean, that's, I talk about in the book that I think, oh, the Protestant Reformation went a little bit too far here, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I think that Jesus, I mean, you know, when, I mean, confession is not always necessarily sin, like, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told uh, Peter, James, and John, he's like, can you stay with me and pray with me? I think that was his way of saying, you know, I'm going I'm going through a hard time. I need you right now. You know, can you watch with me? And so confession can be like just saying, you know, I'm having a really hard time and I need you. Um, yeah. So it's not always like just about sin. Yeah. And I just think Jesus relied on other people he relied on his mother and, and John, as you said, at the, the cross and uh, the, the women that helped him. Mm -hmm. um, I think the same thing with confession. Like, yeah, we could ask the Lord to forgive us and he will. Mm -hmm. But even just naming those things before other people is can be healing. Mm -hmm. And like I keep saying about Alcoholics Anonymous, the church should be more like that, that, mm -hmm. you know, the priest or whoever the spiritual director and friends, um, it helps us in our road to healing and it keeps us accountable. I think the gift of confession is that like you get to see God's love take on skin in your sister or your brother. And then also I want to to talk, follow up again on, on redemption or yeah. Um, would you agree that it's, it's a point and also a process? And I think you talked about Zacchaeus. So I think for a lot of Christians, um, one of our thinking of rede redemption or forgiveness is like, well, I forgive you now, it's okay. Um, why is that process so important? Like Zacchaeus is a process of reparations, um, mm -hmm. but why is the process of making things right so important? I think there's a lot of us who just want to gloss it over. Well, I forgive you, we're okay now, you know? But why is that process so important, do you think? Well, it also depends, right, on the level of transgression. Like if someone sexually abused people, uh, or in some way for the for the person that was sinned against and abused, mm -hmm. I mean, it might take a whole lifetime to be able to come to forgiveness. Um, but we like, at least in the United States, we like to gloss over things mm -hmm. uh, and be done with it, I guess. I, I mean, and um, I'm forgetting the name, but in South Africa, the groups of an uh, apartheid, you know, they had groups and they met for years to learn how to become whole. And it just doesn't happen like that. I mean, I don't think reconciliation is, and, and, and repentance and forgiveness. I mean, it depends on the offense, right? Mm -hmm. You know, just like accidentally bump someone. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you harmed people, I mean, it could take a long time to, for things to be repaired, if ever fully yeah. in this life. And that's what I think. I don't think we do victims and injustice when we just expect, mm -hmm. you know, some people might be able to say, I forgive you real fast. Mm -hmm. and maybe they do or they want to forgive, but I bet you inside they have to keep bringing it up and saying, I, I, I'm going to forgive that person. Like they might say, I forgive you immediately, but maybe they have, you know, memories or hurts that come up. So they have to continually forgive, even though they want to forgive. It goes mm. exactly to what we're talking about. The whole yeah. book is about it's that emptying of yourself. You have to really humble yourself, not only to talk to God, but really say to someone, I have done something wrong. I mean, like empty yourself and I, and, and also the process of 
before you even go into confession and mm-hmm. in the Catholic teaching is the purposeful examination of your conscience, yes. which mm-hmm. puts you into that, what, what Marlena speaks to in the book, that rhythm of really examining yourself and being, being aware of where you might've hurt people along the way. I love the process of confession. I think it's really, uh, it's a really beautiful process of going to, sure, I know I could talk to God, but this just this beautiful process. We do that with a communion, for example, you know, mm-hmm. um, and some Anabaptist groups, at least the group I'm a part of, that was actually part of it before you had the love feast. It was so serious that you had to do a similar examination, but then like repairing the relationship as best as you could, because you cannot take that bread in the cup Mm-hmm. while not in, you know, union and unity and, and yeah, in right relation with your sister or your brother. So, yeah, so it's just, it reminded me of that when you said that. I didn't know that was part of the Catholic communion or confession process. It is. And even more so, in Marlena's book, she talked about the Greek, uh, the Greek mm-hmm. forgiveness the Sunday, which is yeah. a, great, which a great ritual to do, too. I'm going to say, go to all the people you've wronged on a Sunday. Yeah, I actually think the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have it right. And we, I mean, in my opinion, the Protestants can learn from them and they are learning. Um, but that's me. Well, I think what you said about repentance, where you can fall into two different camps of, of mm-hmm. danger zones, sort of like yes. dismissing your sins too much or really perpetual, you know, like dwelling on them and obsessing over them. I think sort of the Protestants went one way and the tendency can be some Catholics can really obsess over them. And so there's mm-hmm. this balance, I think, that we find if you're really practicing that examination, constantly being aware. So I guess my question is, um, what is one thing you want us to hear so that we can be right side up with God and each other? Yeah. Um, well, sometimes you have to evangelize the church and the church is not always going the way of Jesus. We talked about that money, power and influence. So fight that power, the powers of the air. It talks about Ephesians, uh, money, power and influence where people sell out and sell their souls to get whatever they um, benefit. They think they're getting from the world and the church. And sometimes, uh, you know, in, in, in the church sometimes does that. And so do not sell your soul mm. um, even to ministry or to the church. You yeah. know, sometimes people sell their souls. And so the, the way up is down is the way of humility because the way up is down is the way of humility because it is God who will lift us up. We don't need to lift ourselves up. God will lift us up in due time. I really appreciate all of their insights. You all should please go get this book. Hey, where can, speaking of finding yourself, where can we find you? Um, or if people want to learn more, or like where are you? Where can we find you? Where can we get the book? Yeah, you can uh, find me at MarlenaGraves.com um, if you want to contact me for every any reason. A lot of uh, I have some a couple other books and uh, my writings there in different places. And if you want to, um, yeah, any way to contact me, MarlenaGraves.com, and you can find my book pretty much anywhere on online. All right. Well, I really encourage everyone to get it. And Marlena, thanks so much for joining us again. Remember to look out for what Marlena calls us messengers of grace in our lives. And I would say Marlena has definitely been one for me after reading her book. And I think, but it's all of those people around us and they might not look what you think. Marlena references it in the book that it could be Lazarus. It could be that poor man that you don't notice. So mm-hmm. make sure that those people, uh, that you look out for those people that are pointing you towards Christ, pointing you towards emptying of yourself and filling yourself with the love and grace of God. Thank you so much for joining us on The Full Life today. We'll see you next time on The Full Life.